Hello and welcome to Three Peas in a Pod, brought to you by the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm the editor Paul Jarvis, and with me as always is my deputy Jonathan Davis. Hi Paul. In today's episode, we're going to take a look back at recent roundtable discussion that we had, that I chaired in the UK, as well as take the pulse of the US market as it navigates the flow of federal dollars. And we'll also touch again on the rise of progressive P3s. Before we get into that though, I would just like to give listeners a quick update on our various awards. The Partnerships Awards, held in London in May, has now opened for booking tables, and the judges are in the throes of deciding the winners as we speak. Secure your place at the biggest night in the PBP industry by going to www.partnershipsawards.com. Meanwhile, our P3 Awards, which cover the Americas, are now open for entries. So head to www.p3awards.com to get your entry in, to be in with a chance of being rewarded at the most prestigious ceremony in P3. So, having done my bit to keep the awards teams happy, let's get on with the podcast. And we'll start with a quick recap of our recent roundtable session hosted at Burgess Salmon's London office. The discussion was framed by introductory scene-setting comments from Meridium's Julia Prescott, who spoke in her capacity as Deputy Chair of the National Infrastructure Commission, and Matthew Vickerstaff of the Infrastructure and Projects Authority and who was a guest on one of our very first podcasts, for anyone who would like to hear more from him. The focus of the event was to consider the future of the UK infrastructure market in 2023, and where the private sector can play its part. It was quite a lively discussion too, with the conversation often coming back to a debate over how much the public sector can and should be doing to stimulate private involvement in the net zero agenda. Jonathan, you sat in on the event and have been writing up a summary of it. What were your key takeaways? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting discussion and it had a number of different layers to it. Like you said, you've got that internal market of the UK and how it operates between all the different sectors which were all present around the table. But also there was a big element of how the UK fits into the changing international scene, which particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, In the US, the EU are planning some kind of similar subsidy package. You get the sense that these major heavyweights have kind of got the jump a little bit on the UK. And I was talking to one P3 pro in in the US who was saying that the Inflation Reduction Act, IIJA as well, have kind of laid out a, a clear runway, he said, for the next 10 or so years for investors. And in the UK, the sense was that's not quite there yet there's some major projects such as sizewell c which are in the billions for investors but in terms of creating that stability for long-term repeat investment and then creating the industry here there is work that needs to be done one of the major focuses of the discussion was about the business cases which is seen as almost a a way around needing those big subsidies that they give the certainty that investors need but they're a little bit further down the line. Some of them are coming out in 2025 for different sectors. And the room is kind of divided on that point because they're difficult. No one knows which the winners are going to be. No one in terms of, say, hydrogen versus electric cars. So it's hard to predict and create a compelling offer. But at the same time, the urgency is right there. And yeah, I think one of the things, obviously you mentioned Sizewell and something that obviously government is pushing and saying, look, this is a huge opportunity for investors. And it is. But at the same time, it is a single opportunity that has a fair amount of risk attached to it. And 
what we have seen in the US as well, I think, alongside the IIJA and IRA, is actually investors looking for more of that sort of smaller scale project that they can churn, that they can do deal after deal, create some deal flow for themselves, and actually get projects that are up and running fairly quickly, get their money in at a probably lower risk across the board. And that actually then create you know, more of a, a portfolio of assets that have perhaps varying degrees of risk, but they're not sort of effectively putting all their eggs in one basket in that sense, which Sizewell sort of suggests that might be the case. Definitely. And over the last couple of weeks, been doing training with different areas of the industry as well, just to kind of increase our knowledge. And one, one of those was at SIPFA with Mark Williams, and he was saying about how the showing us how the business case works on the inside of the public sector. And they favour a programmatic approach rather than having one big um, element. So there's a natural kind of fit there. So it's going to be interesting. But like I said, there's lots of different pieces that need to come together at the same time as you can have a really good programme of waste to energy. But if you don't have the means to transport it or the products of it, then the business case doesn't match up. You can't have these isolated nodes. And it always comes back to this idea of a system thinking when it comes to net zero. We need to think as a whole, as a country, and have a robust system, which, for instance, nuclear definitely is being seen as a major part of that. But everything kind of has to be done in parallel. Just kind of going back to that international backdrop, this big wave could be missed, if we don't get there and all the expertise and the industries that are really at the forefront in the UK with such incredible packages in America, the skills and and expertise could flow out. So the urgency is definitely there. And that wasn't something that was lost on any of the public sector people at the table. It was definitely at the forefront. But it's an interesting time. It feels like we're right up at a precipice of being able to take this opportunity, but it's a difficult one to take. Yeah. And Certainly one person did say to me after when we were just chatting later on that they are genuinely concerned looking at what's happening in the US and what's happening in Europe, that the UK is going to kind of miss out or it needs to do something that you know attracts a stimulating environment in the way that the EU and US are doing. But yeah, I think there's definitely a feeling that if we carry on kind of as we are, then we are in danger of missing out on some of those big opportunities as you say at the precipice yeah and i think one of the uh, panel members summed it up really nicely and he said medium to long term the uk looks a great place to invest but on the short term particularly in the ppp p3 industry there are hot spots around the world who are really absorbing and, and getting the talent that are needed to channel this kind of level of investment obviously we're thinking about the middle east Greece has got a really impressive pipeline. Canada is doing some really impressive projects. Of course, the United States. So all of the homegrown PPP expertise in the UK, which it looks like it will be needed in the future in one form or another, if they're not seeing the short-term need to be here, that is another boat that you can miss and that would undermine it. But one of the really interesting notes was there was a sense in the room that the winds are kind of changing in the industry and the bookie's favourite, if he does get elected, Keir Starmer might have a different approach to how that kind of jigsaw of private and public investment fits together. This is something I know you've followed, Paul. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yes. Well, I think there was a speech 
in February, where he again kind of reiterated his desire to, I think he sort of said, you know, to get the job done and to do that, to get there, he's said he's very relaxed about, you know, whether the money, whether the investment comes from the private sector, public sector, as long as it's there and, and it gets the work done that he sees as being the priorities, then he's not too bothered about how, how we get the money, how we get the investment, which I'm sure will be kind of music to the ears of those in the industry and probably echoes of Tony Blair in the 1990s. I think you know, plenty of people have sort of made those comparisons. And it's not the first time that Starmer has made those comments either. His uh, New Year speech talked about a partnership with the, the private sector. He made a speech in 2022 where he said much the same thing. So it's clearly now a clear sort of policy really from from him and his party as to how they go about getting the investment that's needed. I guess we have to wait and see, A, whether they win the election, B, whether that translates into um, a programme of private investment after that. But yeah, I think the signs are, are fairly positive. And as you say, there are definitely people now in the industry who are sort of looking to that likelihood, as it currently seems, and you know, pr- kind of preparing for that for a new a new dawn, if you like. Yeah, definitely. But it is still quite a while away. If the election goes as planned, it's a good bit of time. So it, the emphasis on say net zero is you really need to put this work up that work in right up front. There isn't you can't wait for the next opportunity, especially as talking about the opportunities elsewhere. But so yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to see. Is it? It was an interesting roundtable because it was a a moment where you you get the sense that people really want to work and just get down to delivering the projects, but getting those pipes connected, there still is work to be done. Yes, definitely. And well, you can read Jonathan's write-up of the event uh, on the website either by the time this podcast is released or certainly in the days just after. Now, also in the UK, we published a story recently and it's just brings me back to, to a similar theme that things we've been talking about, really. We published a story on a Welsh council looking to terminate its school's PFI nine years early. And I think the thing about this that caught my eye, really, was that Carfilly, the, the council involved, the Cabinet Member for Education, Councillor Carol Andrews, said the move would ensure, and I quote, a fairer approach to funding across all of our schools. Now, my concern, I think, with that is that this is effectively or could potentially be levelling down rather than levelling up. Leveling up, And I don't know what standard the other schools in the council are maintained to, but the fact that she also talked about generating, and again, quote, significant annual savings, unquote, by terminating early doesn't really fill me with, with great hope that these schools are going to be looked after to the higher standards. Now, I obviously have to say, I admit, I don't know the full situation of the schools in Caerphilly, as I say, but you know the rhetoric around ending PFI contracts to save money on maintenance is not something that's new. And it's something I think is worth bearing in mind for the industry. And I do worry it's only going to get louder as we sort of get closer to the hand back on projects. And the idea of a quick termination, as a local authority might see it, over a protracted handback process might seem more attractive. Yeah, it's an interesting moment, Paul. And I think, especially as handback approaches more and more, so, you know, we're going up that bell curve of the amount of projects that are approaching it. It's going to be interesting to see where terminations fit in. And 
just as a bit of an appeal to listeners out there, if, if you've been through a handback that went successfully or unsuccessfully or a termination like this, we'd love to talk to you to try and see what the decision drivers are and, and what the intricacies of this. And because who knows what role it could play? There, there's a lot coming down the line. Now, Jonathan, you've been doing quite a bit of work on what's happening in the US market at the moment. So over to you. Yeah. So is that an interesting time? I always say the word interesting, but that's because it does always change. And I'm thinking back to a year ago where I was at Dallas for P3C, the kind of flagship event, obviously outside of the P3 hubs that we host. And the sense I was getting last year was that there was a real feel that there's an opportunity coming down the line. It was off the back of IIJA, the war in Ukraine had actually just started. So the impact of that wasn't clear, not that it is that much clearer now. And in the lead up to going back to Dallas this year, me and Paul are both going to be there next week. The sense I'm getting is one of kind of hesitation. It's a bit of a pause moment. And I don't know whether that's down to the fact that it's just the actual, the details of delivery means that you have to get down into the weeds of what the problems are. And it's no longer that kind of macro optimism, but there's a lot of different levers being pulled. So one of the ones is that numerous people have said that authorities are kind of sitting back to wait and see on how to do P3s or whether it's the right option. Of course, making sure that each different delivery model is considered is always the best way to do it. You don't want a P3 on a project that's not suited. But its drivers such as inflation and volatility are still making people just pump the brakes. It's not free money, which is important that people understand. There are other reasons to do P3s, but it's got to be done in context. And these other drivers are having a real impact as These are long deals, they're 25 years, they're 30 years, so authorities really need to think that through. And I think it's right that definitely the advisors are kind of saying, let's work through this one by one. But perhaps more interestingly is that IIJA and the Inflation Reduction Act and also the CHIPS Act are throwing so much money into the coffers of public authorities that the need to do a P3 is almost reducing for some places. And I'm thinking particularly of, say, Inglewood, where you've got the really exciting corridor project there. And we were covering it a few weeks ago where it was grants come through and other ones come through. And you can see that the funding for this project and the role for financing is just kind of getting diminished and diminished. And that calls into question what role equity is going to play going forward. So that has been really dividing you know, the people that I've been speaking to. But the number one thing that people keep coming back to is that it's all about project delivery. As soon as we start focusing on that, rather than proselytizing one particular model, you're going to get a stronger spectrum of delivery and that will create more P3s in the pipeline. Yes, I agree with that. And I think the other thing to kind of bear in mind and remember here is that, and this is something we've seen elsewhere in the world as well, that P3 should not be all about the money. So we've seen, as I, as I mentioned, we've seen in other parts of the world, and particularly in the past in the Middle East, you'd get a, a project coming along and the public authority would be all keen to use a, a public-private partnership approach and get the private sector to finance it. And then it would get so far down the line, realize that actually it could 
fund the whole thing cheaper itself as a state entity and then go down that route instead of using the partnership model. I think what we have seen now a lot more in the Middle East is countries realizing, recognizing that what a partnership model brings with them is the opportunity to tap into the expertise and also, of course, the long-term life cycle maintenance of the asset. And that's definitely something that the US authorities need to consider and need to think about rather than it being simply looked at as free money from whichever source they're getting it. Well, definitely. You kind of touched on my next point, which is that tapping into expertise and getting, you know, the real long-term elements, these are two really important parts and nothing really pulls that together like a progressive P3. Now, it is a buzzword. You hear it all the time, particularly up in Canada. There's some really interesting projects, not to mention the high-frequency rail, which just came out, uh, launched the RFQ a few weeks ago. Now, progressive P3s have always had this, not scepticism, but uncertainty about where they actually fit into the spectrum. They were created to be able to be used on projects which have got specifically difficult risks. The one I always think of is up in Canada, there was a project being done with Arctic conditions. And so it needed a closer partnership because you can't transfer that risk. But more and more so, particularly during COVID and also the supply chain shocks, inflation shocks that have happened because of the war in Ukraine, we've seen P3s being used as a way to navigate those commercial problems. And as we've seen inflation start to, although it's definitely not over yet, start to see some decline and maybe some like clearer water in the next couple of years, there's been a question about whether progressive P3s should actually stay around being used on projects where there isn't that specific design risk. And that's divided opinions. But lately, the people I've been talking to have been saying that this is another tool. This is a great tool to be able to bring together both sides into a true partnership. Yes, it's more expensive to do upfront. It does have more risks. But that lesson learned of being able to handle commercial problems like inflation, there will be another problem that will come along at some point. So just keeping that in mind and developing that approach of using progressive to solve the commercial problems and keeping it there I think is a really important change and it just enables a wider range of projects and is another option for authorities, particularly, as I said a minute ago, the ones that are kind of hesitating on whether it's the right way to do it. I think it's just a really, as I said, an an important moment to think, you know, this is a lesson learned, let's keep it and let's use it and make it part of that brighter delivery spectrum that will just utilize the skills that are embedded in this industry, which are being called upon more and more across the United States. Yeah, definitely. And I like the, the idea of keeping those lessons learned. I think certainly in the UK, one of the things that we didn't do very well was actually learn the lessons of PFI in terms of working out what was the, the good and what was the bad. And it's interesting actually talking to somebody quite recently who made the point that from a UK government point of view, if you are talking about the internal UK market, then PFI is is bad. It's literally the devil's work. And yet, if you're outside the UK and looking in and you're asking the UK government for advice and help on projects, as many countries do, then the partnership model, which is not 
overly distinct from PFI as was, is still being used, still being advertised, trained on, um, supported really across the world. Definitely. I think one of those lessons learned, which big differential points is over here in the UK, we, we kind of see PFIs and PPPs as being rigid structures that sometimes you can lock in things that you don't want as the world changes. Obviously, the classic thing is gas boilers not being able to be replaced as times have changed. But with the green transition coming forward and all the unknown what that brings five years down the line, 10 years down the line, in the US, P3s are being seen as a way of locking in flexibility rather than inflexibility. And talking to a couple of people there, they were saying if you get the specs right at the beginning you can, and the language right in the contracts, then you can change it to upgrade these projects as they go through. And also that the private sector is actually better at handling those risks because one instance we're talking about was when you're building a public transit network and over the last few years, say the method at which people pay has changed from actual money to now they just use their bank cards. The private sector is incentivized to get ahead of the curve. They need to make their money off of it. And if it's out of date, they won't make the money. So same thing with this energy transition. It changes that transfer of risk of transferring technologies is a really useful way for the private sector to actually use their innovation because the public sector don't have much experience in evolving technologies as it comes out, which is needed for net zero. Yeah, certainly. And again, we um, have sort of gone through that experience in the UK and going back to um, the times when technology was included as part of a PFI package for schools. So making sure that the schools had the, the latest computers, etc. I think the problem there was, again, around the language and around the way it was all kind of spec'd out because there wasn't the right kind of incentives for the private sector to keep up to date with things. So, you know, a school gets a whole new lot of computers. What perhaps people didn't realise was that in three, five years' time, iPads were going to become in, come into existence and suddenly the need for a large computer and all the desks, etc., was not needed. But actually there was no kind of incentive to make the change. So very quickly you become out of date. So I think, yeah, learning those kind of lessons and it seems that, as you said, the US really is learning those lessons and taking the opportunity to bake in incentive-based approaches rather than simply asking for a certain requirement. I think is really, um, really important. And yeah, going back to your point about the potential to keep progressives in the in the in the system, I think almost the more the merrier, really, that the more different options there are, the more likelihood you are of being able to get projects off the ground. And, you know, we've seen this recently as well with, again, in, in Canada, the um, the work that Graham has done on its Wastaskawin waste treatment project, wastewater treatment project, which has enable the project to go ahead that otherwise wouldn't and i think we're going to see more of that kind of thing coming down the line yeah definitely as i said you know both paul and i are going to be there in dallas so we're going to really looking forward to seeing how the conversations have changed and if you see us there just come and say hello we look forward to uh, meeting you all well it's time to check in with our resident snoop hackett p dealsworth hello hackett uh, what's that you're clutching Hello, Paul. Uh, it's my Spice Girl CD in my X-Force DVD collection. 
Like it, you're meant to be working. This is work. Lots of people in the UK have been telling me how it's feeling like the 1990s at the moment. So I thought I'd remind myself of the era's popular culture. Mm, I'm not sure that's exactly what they meant, Taggett. Really? Yes. I've also been hearing this sort of talk among the UK infrastructure community recently, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, actually. But I think they're really referring to the way in which budgets are being squeezed, the desire to deliver new infrastructure, and, of course, that sort of tantalising view just over the horizon of a possible new government that will be energised to build and is not afraid of the private sector to help it. Ah, oh, I see. So this is more about Blair and Brown than Mulder and Scully, then? In a way, Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer has repeatedly said he's not afraid of using the private sector. So he's really following that approach of the Labour of Labour in the 1990s, when the UK really started to lead the PPP momentum around the world. Right, so no need for me to get my shell suit out of the wardrobe, then? I think if you did that, Hackett, things really could only get better. Now, what else have you dredged up? Anything as disconcerting as last time's discussion of Mussolini, PPPs and fascism? Well, Paul, funny you should mention that. It seems that we in the infrastructure industry might actually be part of a Marxist plot. Ah, the short trip from far right to far left. What is it this time? Well, have you heard of these 15-minute cities? The idea is public authorities develop infrastructure and community amenity so that everything residents need is within a 15-minute walking distance of their home. Yes, I had. Sounds like a fairly sensible suggestion, although it requires a fair amount of joined-up thinking from councils, I should think. But it also seems pretty anodyne. Where's this Marxist plot? Aha, I see you've fallen into their trap. Thankfully, Conservative MP for Don Valley, Nick Fletcher, is less naive than yourself. He recently spoke in Parliament demanding a government debate on 15-minute cities, describing them as, and I quote, an international socialist concept. Turns out there is growing concern online that such cities will be will see us all confined to within 15 minutes of our homes. And I don't like the sound of that, that at all. Let me stop you there, Hackett. The phrase growing concern online is probably all we need to know about this particular threat, or conspiracy theory, as it might also be known. I mean, really, has it got to the stage that elected politicians are actually standing up in Parliament to say these things? It's not remotely believable that putting amenities closer to where people live is all a ruse to prevent them leaving their homes forever. Fair enough, Gov. I'll move on. One thing I did find interesting this month was an example of where the private sector had been the innocent bystanders in a rather surprising mistake. Well, it's good to know it's not always the private sector to blame, isn't it? What's this about, Hackett? Well, it turns out that in Spain there's been a bit of a mistake on the ordering of some new trains. After the order went in and the private sector builders started getting on with the job, they noticed that the dimensions they'd be given for these particular trains wouldn't fit most of the country's tunnels. Good thing it was spotted. That could have been a dangerous mistake. Yeah. Well, so maybe the private sector ain't so bad after all. Maybe indeed. Thanks as ever, Hackett. That's all we've got time for this week. See you again soon. 